Today, Miko Pella joins the Palestine Pod. Miko is an Israeli-American author and activist for Palestinian rights. Your father was, of course, a key figure in the events of 1948 and 1967, which resulted in the expulsion of the majority of the Palestinian population from Palestine. And yet you go on this journey that rattles all of your deeply held beliefs about Zionism and Israel. I, my family was like Zionism was the bread and butter. You know, it's kind of semi-fascist really because Zionism and the state are the most important things in everybody's life. Really all I did was I just went literally almost across the streets because that's all you have to do. To walk from the, you know, as Fanon describes it, the sphere of the privileged and the oppressor to the sphere of the other, in Palestine, it's really across the street, and there is a good version of Zionism. Well, that's part of the myth. There never was, there never is, and there never can be a good version of a racist ideology. Hello and welcome to episode 8 of the Palestine Pod, the weekly podcast where a Palestinian-American lawyer and a Jewish-American comedian break down the latest headlines dealing with Palestine and bring you stories, commentary, and interviews with the aim of spreading awareness about the Palestinian struggle for justice and equal rights. I'm one of your hosts, Lara E. You might know me from Instagram as at Girl, and I'm joined by my co-host, Mikey B. What's going on, y'all? Mikey B on TikTok. Michael Scherzer on Instagram and Mikey Intifada if you report to a cubicle and sell your soul every day. <laughs> Good one. So we're joined by a very special guest today, but before we get into today's episode, please like, comment, and subscribe if you're here on YouTube. If you're listening on a podcast app, please leave us a review. It takes two minutes, but it has such a huge impact and allows our podcast to reach more people. As always, you can find our full episodes and sources at palestinepod.com. And if you want to get involved in the conversation, reach out to us at palestinepod at gmail.com, or you can engage with us on Instagram at the Palestine Pod. We would love to hear from you all. Today, Miko Pella joins the Palestine Pod. Miko is an Israeli-American author, speaker, host, and activist for Palestinian rights. He's the author of Injustice, the story of the Holy Land Foundation 5. This book describes the persecution and the closure of what was America's largest Muslim charity organization, the Holy Land Foundation, and the subsequent trials and convictions of five Palestinian Muslim Americans in what was called by Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist Chris Hedges the most egregious cases of injustice committed to date against Muslim leaders in the United States. Miko also authored The General Sun, Journey of an Israeli in Palestine. This book is an autobiographical work that takes the reader through the life of the Pellid family since Miko's grandparents settled in Palestine in the early 20th century. Miko is also host of his own podcast, where he amplifies the voices of human rights defenders on the ground in Palestine and in exile. Today, he's a fierce supporter of the Palestinian call for boycott, divestment, and sanctions, and the creation of a single democracy with equal rights for all in historic Palestine. Miko, welcome to the Palestine Pod. Thank you. It's great to be with you guys. Thank you so much for being here. We so appreciate your time. Absolutely. Happy to do it. So, Miko, your story is an incredible one, to say the least. To get started, let's talk about The General Sun, which both Michael and I read. So in The General Sun, you share your life story from growing up the son of an Israeli war general in Jerusalem and the grandson of one of the signers of the Israeli Declaration of Independence to how you got where you are today. 
Your father was, of course, a key figure in the events of 1948 and 1967, which resulted in the expulsion of the majority of the Palestinian population from Palestine. And today, those individuals and their descendants remain overwhelmingly refugees all over the world. You have described your family as, quote, as strong of a Zionist family as you could possibly have. And yet you go on this journey that rattles all of your deeply held beliefs about Zionism and Israel. And this book is a recollection of that journey. By the end of the book, we get a clear vision, though, of your stance on Palestinian rights, anti-Zionism, support for BDS, and the belief in one democratic secular state in Palestine, a state where Palestinians have equal rights on their land and where Palestinian refugees will be allowed to even return to Palestine. I almost wish that we got another chapter elaborating on those ideas because they came so late in the book, and I was really cherishing those words and reflections towards the end. But perhaps as a first question, can you describe what it was like to go through such a radical change? And looking back on the book with hindsight, would you have written it any differently today? Well, thanks again for having me on your on your podcast. It's great to chat with you. Um, so the interesting thing about the book is that it required a lot of patience to write because I personally was at the end of the book, but I had to write the whole thing and go through the whole process. And it required a lot of patience. And I have quite a few Palestinian friends, um, one of whom is the author Susan Abulhawa, who wrote a review, uh, which I really liked, um, that reading the book made them crazy. I mean, I mean, Susan Abulhawa wanted to send the book back and say, well, why am I reading this nonsense? Until she got to the end. But that was the process. In other words, it's an honest, it's an honest uh, illustration of the, of the journey. And uh, it's it's very difficult for me to read it today um, because I don't have that kind of patience. You know, I'm at the end of the book and I'm beyond the end of the book and it's time to, you know, act. But it's, a, you know, it's, it's excruciating. It's a very painful process. I mean, I can't imagine how painful it would be for a Palestinian to read this and, you know, where I describe the glories of the Israeli army and the Zionists and all this. But that's where I was and that's where most Israelis are. And when I say I come from a Zionist, a family... As, as there is, it's true. My, my family was like Zionism was the bread and butter. Zionism, you know, it's kind of semi-fascist really because, because the Zionism and the state, the state, and that's how it's, you know, that's how it's said, the state, are the most important things in, 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 in everybody's life. You know, how you contribute to the state, what your family did for the state. Who did, you know what I mean? And that was the family, and that was these were the close friends, and these were the people my parents associated with, and so on. So it couldn't get any more Zionist and patriotic than that. And and really, all I did was I just went literally almost across the streets because that's all you have to do to walk from the, you know, as Fanon describes it, the sphere of the privileged and the and the and the, and the oppressor to the sphere of the other. In Palestine, it's really across the street in, in many places, you know, or a short drive. Um, and that's really all I had to do. And um, it's incredible how short it is geographically, but how difficult it is in every other, in, in every other way. And uh, how many uh, obstacles you have to go through in order to take that journey as an Israeli, you know, getting over the fear, getting over the, the, the stigma, getting over the racism, getting over the, the characteristics of the Arabs as, as just basically wanting to kill us. And your whole life, the image of young Palestinians is the image of death, is the image of terrorism, you know? 
So you have to start to humanize people. And you don't know that you have to do that until you're actually there and you go through the process of having to do it. So it's an excruciating process, uh, and it only shows just how effective the Zionist education system and the racism, the, the indoctrination to racism is uh, in Israel. But yeah, that was the, that was, you, you described the book very, very well, actually. Yeah. She has a way of doing that. Yeah. <laughs> Being a lawyer helps, I think. I want to go back to what you just said, which is that definitely as a Palestinian, the book was very difficult to read. Yeah. And obviously knowing your work and following it for several years now, I kind of had the spoiler alert. So I knew the book would have a good ending, but it was just the process of getting through it um, to finally see that good ending. One of the main things that I think made it so difficult for me was that throughout the book, we see so many of the figures that we as Palestinians know as colonizers, as, as responsible for the killing of our loved ones and, and our uprooting from our land. They appear as casual characters in the book. You know, they're, they're friends of the family. They, you know, went to school with your sister, people like uh, Ben-Gurion, Rabin, uh, Ehud Barak, and Netanyahu. And then at the same time, there's also these moments where you are witness to the cruelty of the Israeli army. So like when you are arrested for protesting alongside Palestinians in the West Bank and you're taken to the police station and there's that exchange with the officer who says he can't hold you because it would violate procedure since you are, quote, an Israeli and you have rights, you're not a Palestinian. And then also the part that just tore me up inside was when you recall hearing about how the Israeli army orders Palestinian fishermen off the boat of Gaza to jump in the water from their boats they then shoot their boats and they yell at the fishermen to count to 100 until they drown. And as the book unfolds, you recall these incidents. And the, the more that you sort of go through this process, you're actually discovering the cruelty of the Israeli army, the cruelty of this institution. And it seems to you like it's almost a surprise, at least, you know, as I'm reading it, it seems like there's this awakening to, wow, this is actually what you guys are doing. But as a Palestinian... I'm reading this and I'm like, well, of course, that's what the Israeli army does. You know, that's that's the only thing they've ever done is to dispossess and, and, and oppress Palestinians. That's the raison d'etre of the Israeli army. So I guess my question on this point is, is ignorance really a problem amongst Jewish Israelis? Do you think a lot of them are in the dark or is there something else happening? Well, today, nobody's in the dark. Because the discourse changed, you know what happened after after two thousand, after the failed Camp David, you know, uh, accord after the Second Intifada, is that the 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 mask fell off the Zionism off the Zionists, and Israeli discourse changed entirely, and it kind of it's almost like they realized why are we bothering to pretend that we're something that we're not. We can get away with saying what we think and doing what we want. And that, as far as I, at least it was my experience, uh, as, as far as my experience went, that was not the case. There was a lid on stuff like that. I certainly never saw it. I never heard anybody talk about it. Uh, we, we knew there were incidents, like in every army, like in every country, you know, there are bad apples, so to speak. Bad things happen, but, you know, we take care of that and we make sure it doesn't happen again. But we're basically the good guys here. And then as I embarked on this journey, I, I, I realized that this was a completely different story. But what changed, what changed in Israeli society is the discourse. Now, the other thing is, today, Israeli society, almost everybody has either themselves 
or a brother, a father, a cousin, a friend, a next door neighbor who is either in the military, mm-hmm. in the secret police, in the Shabak, uh, in the Mossad, in one of those uh, gazillions of, of, of different uh, branches of the Israeli defense that are engaged every day, you know, every single day on a regular basis in that kind of activity. And it's people talk about it. I mean, it's not nobody's ashamed of it. Nobody thinks there's a problem. I grew up in a, in, in an environment where it was not talked about, and if it was brought up, it was you know, oh my goodness, no, this is so shameful. You know, no, you don't do these sorts of things. You know, we're not like that. So that that was the atmosphere. And to discover that I was, you know, that's it's, it's it's it sounds silly right now, but I mean, that's that was the environment. But today, people talk about these things, and and nobody thinks there's a problem. So that kind of that facade was dropped, I think, mostly after 2000. It's like that sketch where the actors are like, are we the bad guys? Really quickly, you spoke about in your book how you had reservations joining the army because you knew some of the brutality. How much did you know before you actually went into the army? I just knew that the occupation was bad because, you know, I heard it at home. You know, my family, even though it was very Zionist, it was kind of a left-leaning progressive Zionist, if you will. And so we knew the occupation was wrong. My father, after he retired from the military, promoted the idea of a two-state solution. He was one of those, you know, the original Zionists who talked about the two-state solution as being the Palestinian state in the West Bank and Gaza. And so that's what we heard at home. That's what everybody talked about. You know, my, the circle of friends also changed a lot during those years. And so I knew that the occupation was bad. And I knew that, you know, serving in the army and, 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 and hitting protesters and bombing refugee camps was taking place and was wrong. And so I had reservations. But I mentioned that in the book, too. Uh, the, the, there's a sense of vanity that drives young guys, young Israeli guys into the military a sense of power, a sense of vanity, and that, although it's masked as patriotism, but it's really, it's not. And plus, I really had nobody to talk to about this. There was nobody saying, hey, you know what, here's what's really going on. I just kind of picked up from whatever was, you know, I could pick up. So I, uh, and to this day, I mean, I regret that decision not to, not to refuse. There were people, very few, but there were, there were a few people of my, you know, my age group that did refuse. Yeah. Um, but uh, and I wish I had, but no, I didn't. I went in uh, willingly and happily. Can I just ask you about this sort of line in the sand that we often hear about uh, from liberal Zionists? And that is the idea of the occupation is wrong. The occupation of the territories uh, which were occupied in 1967 is wrong. But the creation of the state of Israel itself, which resulted in an even greater expulsion and dispossession of Palestinians from their land, that somehow is not to be questioned. When in reality, the same thing is happening. Land theft through conquest and dispossession. But for some reason, the creation of the state is not questioned by liberal Zionists, whereas 1967 might be, and we can sort of put into a box the moral issues that we're willing to grapple with and then completely ignore everything else. Well, the that early group of Zionists that included my father after 1967, the the they set certain parameters, and one of the parameters was that we don't talk about the past. Hmm. We don't talk about 1948. We talk about the future. We talk about the West Bank and Gaza. We talk about a Palestinian state. We don't talk about the past. And that continues today. And so the, the liberal Zionists latch onto that. They go, no, we're not going to talk about the past. We're only going to talk about the future. But what has become incre- completely clear over the years is there is no past and future. It's all the same process. 
In other words, 1967 was an extension of 1948. Exactly. It was not a separate thing. But in order to do that, you have to completely dismantle the myth. You have to dismantle the myth. Well, if you start dismantling the myth, then you can't be a liberal Zionist anymore. You have to be progressive or you have to admit that you're a racist and you support violence and, and, and ethnic cleansing and all these terrible things. So they latch on to this sense of, uh, yeah, we leave the past behind. We don't talk about 1948, but yes, the occupation is wrong. We don't question the legitimacy of the state of Israel. We don't question the legitimacy of Zionism. And that's what allows them to continue. That's why you can have J Street. You know, that's exactly why you can have J Street and you can have all these people go and speak at J Street, even Palestinians. Um, because, you know, there's a sense of, you know, these th there are good Zionists. There is a good version of Zionism. There's a good version of Israel that's possible. Well, that's part of the myth. There never was, there never is, and there never can be a good version of a racist ideology. There never can mm. be a good version of an apartheid regime. Yeah. That is engaged in, in brutality and, and 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 so on and such terrible violence. So, but you have to dismantle the myth, right, in order to get to that point. Well, liberal Zionists don't want to do that. They want to maintain their happy identity as liberals, but also as Zionists. So then, you've actually answered one of my other questions, which is: Is there a version of Zionism, a progressive form of Zionism, that can coexist with care for Palestinian human rights and Palestinian self determination? And I would, of course, argue that there is not, because the entire premise of Zionism is that Jews should live in Palestine and come from all over the world to settle the land of Palestine at the expense of those who are already in Palestine. So for me, these two concepts do not go together, but I would love to hear your thoughts. It's, it's more than that, actually. It's even worse than what you just said, because the basic concept of Zionism is that uh, the land of Israel belongs to the Jewish people. The Jewish people. So the Arabs are just invaders. There's no room for Arabs. There, and also, there was nothing significant happened in, in, in the land of Israel since the, um, since the Romans you know, uh, ex expelled the Jews, which historically turns out perhaps never happened. But that's the theme, right? Right. So from that point on until Zionism, until the end of the 19th century, early 20th century, there was really nothing significant happened in the land of Israel. And there was a constant presence of Jewish people there. That's all that matters. You know, 2,000 years of, of everything else that happened in Palestine and actually built Palestine is Doesn't of no matter. relevance. It, yeah. only it only belongs to the Jews. There's only the Zionist narrative. And that's that. And well, it's a it's a it's a racist ideology that is built built on a false premise. I mean, it can go even further back because the premise that somehow Jews are a people with a land and a language and a history, a common land, language, and history is also fa false. It's not true. You know, the most uh, you know that's why Orthodox Jews oppose Zionism, right? Because they say Jews are a nation united by their religious laws, not by a land and language. That's why you could be a Yemenite Jew, an Iraqi Jew, and a Polish Jew, and you're all Jews, because it's about the faith. But Zionism threw all that away. They said, oh, that's all nonsense. The Bible is our history book. Palestine is our land. And Hebrew is our language, which, of course, none of, none of that is really true. So it's, it's, there's, no, there's no good version of that. There cannot be a good version of that. It's racism. And besides, you know, again, it's, it's, um, we don't need to 
analyze what they say or what they think because we can see what happened. They're doing 70, seven day over almost a hundred years actually of history in Palestine demonstrates very clearly what Zionism is about, what the objectives of Zionism are, and where this is leading. It leaves absolutely no room for doubt. You know, James Baldwin says, I don't know what I don't necessarily know what white people think of me or 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 feel about me, but I can see what they do, and that's enough. And that's how I judge. It's the same thing. We can see what Zionists have done and what they continue to do. Right. There's a part in The General Sun where you describe how during the expulsion of the Palestinians in 1948, the coffee was still hot on the table in their homes. And that's actually a story that I grew up hearing, by the way, from from my own grandparents and from other Palestinians in their generation. You also describe how your mother was offered a Palestinian home and she refused out of principle. So would you say that your family's relationship with Israel and Zionism was always at least a little bit complicated from its inception? Because the reality is that many Zionists did move into Palestinian homes. They didn't think twice about it. So is there something there that, that is kind of uncomfortable from the very beginning, or am I reading too much into it? Well, the fact that I, my mother told me this story over and over and over and over again as I was growing up about how she was offered this home and, you know, she was 22. She was already a mother. She was living, you know, in a tiny apartment with her parents. I mean, that was couldn't have been fun. And suddenly she's offered, and I don't know if you've been to Palestine, but these homes in West Jerusalem, what they, they call them the Arab homes. Yeah. These are magnificent homes. Yes. This was a wealthy community. They built beautiful homes. They, you know, it was a rich, rich in every yes. way, not, not just financially rich, but it was a rich community. In fact, I just did an interview on my uh, on my uh, Patreon uh, podcast with Rada Karmi, who was expelled in 1948. She's from, you know, she lived exactly in that period. Um, and we, we discussed exactly the same story. And Palestinians like, you know, always appreciate when I talk about this story. But, you know, she was offered and these beautiful homes, spacious and so on. And she said, how can I move into the home of another family? How can I move the home to uh, of another mother who now has to raise her family in exile and, and as refugees? And so, but that did not ever translate to anything else, to any kind of action. I mean, she personally did not take the home. And, you know, many years yeah. later, as, as we all came of age, we realized, wow, phew, thank God, you know, I mean, living with that guilt would have been even, even worse. But, you know, she, she supported her husband 110%. And he was, you know, he was part of the, the, the Zionist militia. He was part of the Israeli army. I mean, you know, the whole thing is her father, her entire being, you know, uh, her entire being was Zionism and the state of Israel. But she had this, you know, she had this uh, cognitive dissonance. That maybe was kind of, you know, yeah. at least at least it had the honesty to see that there were some really terrible things that took place. I think it's in, I think it's in the General Sun uh, towards the end where I'm sitting with her and there's a there's a, a signed uh, photograph of David Ben Gurion that my father received. You know, he used to mm -hmm. give his sign an autograph to all the generals. And I said, why are you still, why is it still hanging here? I mean, the guy was a war criminal. He was, she, oh, no, 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 no. Oh, no, Ben Gurion. Oh, my goodness. No, 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 Ben Gurion. You know, without him, we would never have had a state. And you know, so so she lives in these two separate realities. realities. Yeah. You know, couldn't get her to take, take that picture off. So you described your grandfather's disdain for David Ben Gurion and how that impacted his future despite his accomplishments. Can you talk about how so-called moderate Zionists have always been pushed aside by like the more militant right factions and how that happens in a broader scheme in Israel's politics? 
Well, yes. I mean, it started with really with this Iron Fist uh, policy and Iron Fist mentality of Ben Gurion and the military who wanted nothing more than just to maintain Israel as the toughest, meanest, craziest bully in the neighborhood. And that's it. Don't mess with us. We don't want peace. We don't want agreements. We're going to attack and attack and attack and make sure that that's it. So every time there was there was somewhat of, of an argument whether or not that is the best way for Israel to go forward, that argument was shut down by, by a war, by a, an operation, you know, whatever the case may be, to say, see, these people are weak and they want us to be weak and they want us to, to, you know, to make peace. But how can you make peace when you live in this neighborhood? And yeah, of course, you know, if we were in Scandinavia, then maybe we can make peace with our neighbors. But look at who our neighbors are. And so how could we possibly make peace with them? And today, today, if you want to uh, discredit someone, you say that they are left. You use the word left, you know, the capital L. And it's ridiculous because you look at Israeli politics today, and when somebody wants to discredit Netanyahu, the people that are, you know, the, the more extreme settlers, for example, uh, they say that he is a lefty. Which could he has not be left further from the oh, truth. You know, I mean, this is it's it came yeah. to a point where the rush to the right is how you win the election, yeah. is how you gain votes, is how you gain popularity in Israeli politics today. And really, there used to be this glorious Zionist left, which is, of course, was a myth because you can't be, a, I mean, Zionist left is, is a myth. But today, even the Zionist left is, 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 is ridiculed. I mean, it's, there's not much left of it, you know, a few small parties, but they're ridiculed. People look at them like they're idiots, like they're fools, and actually they are. And, and it continues. The, 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 the neo-fascism is what Zionism, neo-fascism, Zionism is a form of neo-fascism. There's no way around it. And Israel is the expression of that. There's no way around that. Yeah, the absolute love for the military, the exalting of a strong figurehead, the you know, glorification of war while otherizing people and conscription, all of that are classic signs of fascism. So Israelis are, you know, offended if you say occupation, if you call Israel settler colonial. Yep. But only in English. In Hebrew, the the words that are most commonly used in order to glorify Israel are occupation, co- settlements and being in settlers and colonizers. I had a, I was meeting somebody, a friend in, in uh, near Yaffa, and we met and he said, well, let's meet near this um, uh, par- big parking lot in Yaffa, which is called the, the, the colonizer's parking lot. It's near the conqueror's street and oh across the road from the, you know, the occupier's park. These words are used all the time. Every street, every every city, every town has a colonizer's uh, plaza, for example, because they view these things as glorious. That is what glorifies Israel. That's how Israel was established. But don't you dare say it in English, because in English it doesn't sound right. Yeah. What is the disconnect between saying the same thing in Hebrew and the same thing in English? Well, I think that in English it seems to them that we're... It's hard to explain. I mean, it's it's a disconnect that I don't I don't even know if that that I can explain. But I think they understand that if you say settler colonialism today, it it sounds bad. It's not a, it's a bad thing. But when you're inside the Zionist mind, 
then it's glory because these are the people that 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 allowed Israel to to become you know a state and you know the, the entire mythology is built on settlers, on colonizers, and on occupiers and on conquerors. And you know in Jerusalem, half the streets are named after either generals. Actually, not only Jerusalem, uh, many of the cities, half the streets are named after either generals or military units. Or, you know, the tank brigade road. I mean, that's how everything is, uh, that's, that, that's how everything is, is, is that's the, the reality there in Israel. And those are, of course, names which were changed, right? They, these all used to have Palestinian names. And all of these, you know, references to Occupiers Park and all of this General Street and, and whatever, you know, whatever other examples you gave are part of the de-Arabization of, of Palestine. Yes, of course. I mean, I don't know if you read uh, The Return to Haifa by Hassan Kenafani, um, but as they drive back into Haifa, you know, after 1967, you know, he remembers, he talks about how he remembers the old, the old street names. And of course, they're all gone, although the old street names have been changed. You know, of course, yeah. When you were growing up, did you have a sense that this had happened or was happening in the culture that you were growing up as a part of? Or was this something that you really became aware of as an adult? No, I grew up admiring all of this and adoring all of this uh, completely. I only became aware of what this really is. Um, and I talk about it in the book. I mean, that's part of the journey. When, when the journey began into Palestine and you know, things fell into place, and um, I realized that you know there are two narratives here and they can't coexist. That also goes back to your question about can there be a good Zionism? These are yeah. two narratives that cannot coexist. One negates the other, you know? And so I had to choose and and everything I saw pointed in 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 one direction. There, there were no two, there was really there's no option here. And you notice all these different things. You notice that the, you know, King David Street was used to be called Salahdin Street and yeah. um, you know, all these different things, and you know, Herzl Street used to be King Faisal Street, and all these, all these kinds of things. Um, all around you, and then you can't. You know, it's 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 really difficult. For example, you know, people like to go to the beach in Tel Aviv. That's like mm -hmm. the, the. If you know what happened in Yaffa, the destruction. If you know that the, that that promenade, that's that that the beautiful grassy area, the beach is built on what used to be a thriving community, a thriving city, with thousands upon thousands of people. You can't, can't can't go to that beach. You just can't enjoy it. It's impossible to go. You can't just sip martinis. You can't just enjoy the girls in bikinis with automatic rifles. You yeah, no, it takes away it takes away all of that. And yeah, you know, knowledge knowledge can be a very dangerous thing. It's a little bit like walking around in some of the cities in Eastern Europe and, and, and Central Europe, where you know that you know these new cities were built on the ashes of community Jewish communities that were, you know, wiped out. You just you you're literally walking on on graves. I think that's part of the reasons why Israelis are so defensive about about their past about 1948 because if they start accepting that, then it really it not only destroys the legitimacy or any argument for the legitimacy of Israel, but it's more than that. I mean, you can't you can't exist with yourself. You can't exist. You can't enjoy these things anymore. You can't be who you are anymore. Friends, their very identity. Yeah. One of the major Zionist myths that you rebut in the General Sun is the notion that Israelis were attacked by the Arabs in 1967. 
and that military occupation of the Palestinian West Bank and Gaza that ensued was necessary as a result of this attack. Can you clarify this for us, set the record straight once and for all? Sure. I do this all the time. Yeah. One of the things I did as I was working on the book was go into the Israeli army archives to learn about my father, basically, you know. And one of the more interesting things was that was available were the minutes of the meetings of the Israeli high command leading up to the 1967 war. Actual uh, minutes of these meetings of the people who, dis, you know, who, who not only pushed for the war, but, but prepared for it and, you know, executed it. The word threat doesn't even come up once. They talk about an opportunity. They talk about an opportunity to destroy the... They talk mainly about the Egyptian army because the other armies were really not even... They, nobody discussed the other, the other countries at that point. That it's an opportunity to once again destroy it because it's ill-prepared. It's not going to be prepared for an attack, for a real war, for at least another two years. And they say it again, and they say it again, and they say it again. And every time they try to push the government to declare war or to approve a, war, a preemptive attack, and the government resists... And I talk about these two groups as well, the, the, the cabinet and the generals mm-hmm. and the differences between them. Every time that comes up, you know, especially my dad would stand up and say, what are you talking about? I mean, we're, we're, we're wasting an opportunity here. There's no threat. But then what they needed to do is they need to somehow pre- apply pressure on the government. And the way they did that is by putting out this um, the story that there's an existential threat. Mm-hmm. That the Arabs are going yeah. to come and they're going to slaughter us and they're going to rape every woman and slaughter all of us. And I remember as a child hearing that, that the Arabs are going to come and slaughter us, you know, and this is terrifying. Um, but then as you read the meat, and then, and then, of course, you know, the whole thing was over in six days. You know, once you start, you know, connecting the dots and seeing what actually transpired during the war, uh, then it's, it's obvious that the whole thing was 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 a was a lie. There was no threat and nobody, you know, the Arabs didn't attack. But then they used that and they, they perpetuated that myth that the Arabs attack or that the Arabs were preparing to attack. And thank goodness, you know, we had a preemptive strike and, and we, you know, destroyed all their armies and were a great victory and so on and so forth. The truth is that they attacked ill-prepared Ill, you know, armies that were not prepared, that were weak. And victory was, there was no doubt that there was going to be victory. And it was a very, relatively speaking, very low cost. I mean, I think the Israeli forces lost six or seven hundred soldiers. The Arab armies lost eighteen thousand soldiers. And the you Palestinians know. didn't have an army, so. Well, Palestinians weren't really part of the equation. The Palestinians right. were under Jordan at that point, and right. so at that, you know, so I mean, for, and 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 then once and then once the campaign against the Egyptians went so smoothly and easily, the generals on their own decided to take the West Bank, Gaza, and the Golan Heights. And later on, my father claimed that that coup, that they should be that they should be taken to court because there was no actual Israeli government approval to take that to 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 engage in in war with Jordan and Syria, and to take that those to take those parts of you know of, but they were so successful that nobody nobody you know nobody was going to question it. My father Ariel Sharon even and others talked about the fact that there was no threat. The whole notion that there was a threat was a joke was ridiculous. Mm-hmm. On that uh, point about there being no formal plan to seize those territories, you also spoke about a time where your father gave a lecture in front of David Ben-Gurion, where he was talking about how the army is building up to seize land from the Jordan River to the sea. That's based, I mean, he didn't say that exactly, but something like that. 
Um, So how is it possible that there was no plan, but he gave a lecture about it? It's not that there was no plan. There was a plan. But in that particular instance, the generals decided to do this on their own. There was no government uh, resolution saying, yes, we are going to attack and take these lands. Got you, got you. He said in that lecture, this was 1953. Yeah. You're absolutely right. He said the military is prepared to push the, the, the eastern border of Israel to where it should be, which is the Jordan River. In other words, all from the river to the sea should be Israel. The military realizes this. We're just waiting for the government to wake up and give us that give us that order. And there was a hint of criticism there, too, that the government is sitting around uh, wasting time while we could be, you know, taking land that belongs to us, so to speak. Should be according to who? According to the Zionists, you know, it's according to these, you know, these radical uh, Zionist patriots, of course. Is that the first iteration of From the River to the Sea? Because it happened in 1953. Well, I think it's the first iteration that I saw that comes from an official uh, within the system. You know, there were claims. I mean, you know, the the the, the predecessor of the Likud party, Menachem Begin, and, and, and that whole group, I mean, they always talked about two sides. There are two sides to the River Jordan, and they're both ours. So they talked about not just from the river to the sea. They talked beyond the river. Beyond. Like a greater Israel. Their map of Israel included Jordan. And there's a gun and, you know, there's two sides of the two banks to the river Jordan. This and this are both ours. But I have never seen any, any like official iteration like that where an actual, you know, commander, he was the senior, but he was not a junior commander anymore either. And a lot of those guys were actually operating as, with much more authority than their actual rank was because the military was small and they all, you know, they're all big shots. Uh, saying something like that very, very clearly, very, very clearly that this is, this is the, this is the intent. And not only is it the intent, it's, it's how, what we understand needs to happen. In other words, it's inevitable. It's just a question of some te- you know, technicality for these old, you know, people sitting in the cabinet uh, or uh, around the cabinet uh, table to finally, you know, muster up whatever it is they need to muster to give us the command to do this because we're prepared. And the Palestinians are completely dispensable in this entire process. It doesn't matter. They don't they exist. Actually, they don't exist. It doesn't matter that, that we live there. Palestinians do not exist. They're Arabs and they're dispensable. And there are a lot of people that said, you know, there was a plan in 1948 to take Hebron and Bethlehem. And at the last minute, for internal reasons, Ben Gurion said no. We're going to stop, and that's it. We're going to leave the West Bank as it is, and we're going to, you know. And he was criticized for that for, you know, until 1967. And then after 1967, the criticism was, and even my father said this, had we taken it in 1948, of course, we could have expelled them. Now, it's too late. Now you can't do these sort of things. Yeah, now it's too late. Well, I don't know about that, because right now in East Jerusalem, they are expelling a population that has lived there for generations, right? It's a continuation of the policy. Oh, absolutely. What he was talking about, like the mass... No, I understand. Like they did in 1948. What's happening in East Jerusalem is... It's happening throughout the West Bank. I mean, Mm -hmm. but what is happening in Jerusalem is horrifying. The Judaization of of Jerusalem is, is... is ethnic cleansing, you know, 101, and you can just walk down the street and see it. In other words, you don't even have to, you know, they don't do it in hiding. They don't do it like, you know, at night or anything. You can walk any day in Silwan and you see the destruction and you see the ethnic cleansing, you know, right in front of your very eyes. 
it's horrifying what is happening in Jerusalem. And, you know, you know, I don't know, 10, 20 years ago, when people were talking about the destruction of Al-Aqsa, I know I thought it was nonsense. It's never going to happen. But there always was a, a very dedicated movement calling for the building of a third temple. And to and you know they would take tours of you know they would take tours of the Temple Mount you know yeah. to show people and there would be twenty thirty lunatics who would take these tours. Over the last few years, there have been fifty, sixty, eighty, a hundred thousand people going on these tours, and the entire operation, the entire program, what they call the Greater Jerusalem, which includes the building of a Jewish temple instead of Al Aqsa is alive and well and people are being trained and and in other words this is a real program and you know you, i'm sure you remember the story of, of david friedman the american ambassador standing there with a poster of 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 you know of, of without alexa with some kind of a, of a of some other structure there was supposed to be yeah. some kind of a temple so i think that's where this is leading when we're looking at the at the de-arabization and judaization the judaization of jerusalem that is where it's going and when we look at the people for example the the minister for jerusalem affairs in the israeli government he's one of those third you know third temple people he believes that a temple a so-called jewish temple should be built instead of al-aqsa you know these people are in the cabinet they're in the government they are part of the mainstream now and so I say this because I think people don't realize just how severe the situation is and how crucial it is for every human being with a conscience to stand up and say they are going to destroy Jerusalem. Yeah. They are going to destroy a, a nearly 2,000-year history, monuments, civilization, never mind the religious significance of this. And they think nothing of it. They think nothing of it. Yeah, yeah, just take a look at what we've seen in the last few days. We've seen massive arrests by the Israeli army preventing hundreds of Palestinians from going to pray in Al-Aqsa Mosque. And now we're in the month of Ramadan, and this happens all the time. I mean, when I was in Palestine, I only went one time. Uh, I went 10 years ago, and uh, I saw this happen in front of my own eyes. Palestinians being arrested outside Al-Aqsa. It's, it's, it's a common occurrence. It's um, year after year after year. Every year, year after yeah. Year, and it's getting worse because they're, they're emboldened. The move of the American embassy to Jerusalem you know, I remember being in some conference and somebody said, well, you know, it's not really, it's just symbolic. It really doesn't mean anything. I think um, people do not appreciate mm. what that meant. That gave a stamp of approval to a process that is designed to destroy Jerusalem and turn it into this, I don't know, this mythical Jewish city. Um, they have state-sponsored programs where they teach young people how to operate the new temple that will be built there already they, yes they've been doing it for years wow you know because mm. you know certain people instead of being uh, going to the military they opt for all kinds of national service stuff right that is one of the options to go and be trained as what to do and how to operate the temple when you know the day comes and Al-Aqsa is destroyed and the thing is again 10 years ago if somebody suggested america would move its embassy they'd be laughed at. I mean, no, they're not going to do that because the Arab world and the Muslim world, they're not going to allow it. Well, they happen, it happened. Nothing, nothing really, no, nothing dramatic. There were no dramatic consequences to the moving of the, the embassy. And it emboldened not only... No, in fact, they were rewarded. They got all these so-called peace agreements with countries they were never at war with, with Bahrain, the UAE, and Sudan, and Morocco, and perhaps yeah. now Saudi Arabia to come. So, 
but it emboldened all the way down to the last soldier. And what we're seeing now, these provocations against Palestinians doing Ramadan is not a coincidence. No. This is not just happening because. This is part of the plan. And it's a frightening plan. I mean, imagine Jerusalem without the Golden Dome. We're seeing roves of crazed settlers shouting death to Arabs in the streets of Jerusalem during Ramadan. But it's not just these crazed you know, West Bank settlers. You know, these are people that, you know, many of them probably grew up the way I grew up. Yeah. I would argue that they're still settlers, but yes. This is not an extreme version of Zionism anymore. Yeah. That's the problem. I don't think people realize just how by dropping the facade and having this open racist discourse in the news, on TV, on the street, at home, certainly among politicians and among people in general, opened up the possibility of just expressing, not only expressing in words, but expressing in action. The worst type of racism, the worst type of genocide against the Palestinians in a way that is even more bold than what we've seen up to now. So you think Israeli society right now is probably the most racist it's ever been? Not that it's more racist, but it's openly racist. In other words, it was always racist. Yeah. But it's openly racist. The discourse is openly racist and violent to a point that is unprecedented. Yeah. And that openness emboldens the people. It emboldens every single soldier. And of course, we know that, you know, killing some, you know, kid with special needs in an alley in Jerusalem is nothing. Yeah. You know, or shooting a shooting a, a, a fatally wounded Palestinian in the head and, and killing him on the ground turns you into a hero. You know, every, everything from that to, you know, Pollard landing and, and receiving, a, you know, Jonathan Pollard. Yeah. I mean, people are just not putting things together. They're not realizing. And that's why they can remain, you know, these liberal Zionists can remain, think they can remain liberal Zionists. It's a monstrosity. It is. It is. It is the. It is racism and violence of the absolute worst kind. And it, the brutality knows no bounds. And at the same time, the Zionists purport to represent Judaism, right? And I, as a Jew, take serious offense to that. They flagrantly violate every Jewish law, pretty much, and. Why is it should you think that Zionists are unable to see that Zionism is, in fact, a violation of Judaism in most cases? Well, I actually wrote about that just a few weeks ago. On my, I have, I have a column with uh, Mint News Press. If you look at what the early Zionists, even Herzl, the founder of Zionism, mm-hmm. they said immediately that any you cannot be a Jew if you oppose Zionism. They made it very clear right, right away because they knew that the majority of Jewish people at the time, and you know, we're talking about Central and Eastern Europe, where there were millions of Jews. This is before World War II. Opposed in the most, in the most, uh, in the strongest terms, opposed Zionism, and they said exactly what you just said. Zionism is 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 the is Judaism's main nemesis. It's worse than anti-Semitism, and they still say it today. By the way, I mean, I mean, I mean, Orthodox Jews, anti-Zionist Jews, you know, people who are practicing Jews still say that today. You know, that's why they oppose Zionism and they oppose the, the, the state of Israel. They reject the state of Israel. But they very clearly, and I heard this growing up as well, if you're not a Zionist, you're not really a Jew. The Jews are the, the Zionists are the real Jews. And again, this was something that was perp- uh, perpetuated from the very, very beginning. It was 
it was made very, very clear by the very early Zionists that the real Jew is the Zionist Jew. And all these other, you know, lefty or, or Orthodox Jews, they're not real Jews, they're just vermin. And you should read, you should read mm -hmm. the kind of terminology they use to describe non-Zionist Jews. The racist, anti-Semitic terms they use to describe Jews. I read it every day in my comment section. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Yeah, I actually read that article, Nico, that you wrote about uh, the anti-Semitic origins of the Zionist state. Yeah. And I think for a lot of people who maybe don't know a lot about this subject, they have that association of Israel equals Judaism, Judaism equals Israel, and they would be very shocked to learn that a state that calls itself a state for Jewish people is actually anti-Semitic in its origins, but also until today, its leaders are happy to uh, associate themselves with known anti-Semites today. Yeah. And they still beat up Jews in the streets for protesting the army. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, but people. Yeah, again, it's it's it's. Yeah, you know, you you hope that at some point, especially in America, a country that gives Israel four billion dollars a year, where it's a country that doesn't need four billion dollars a year because it's a fully developed, you know, rich, wealthy state, would examine, would try to take a closer look at, you know, who is it that we're giving this money to, and who is it that we're supporting, and why, you know. When Bernie Sanders says that you know that aid to Israel needs to be conditioned on Israel's compliance with you know human rights and so forth, that was a step in the right direction. I mean, it was a big step, but Americans need to pay attention to this. I mean, people just don't realize what it is that happens in in, in Israel. What kind of a, what kind of a state this really is, and what kind of a state it is that we are supporting as Americans because yeah. we're the primary funder of this. Yeah. Um, I also spent some time listening to your podcast, Miko. I enjoyed so many of the episodes that I listened to, uh, especially the ones with Rabbi Shapiro. Those were insanely enlightening. He is so well-spoken and so um, knowledgeable. I, I actually listened to them a couple of times. But one of the interviews and, and uh, sessions that you did that I really enjoyed was you spoke about the uh, educational system in oh, yeah. the United States, but also in Israel, and how the pro-Israel lobby influences and is able to actually edit school curriculums in the U.S. public school system to promote the pro-Zionist narrative and erase Palestinian history. And then you also hosted a different session, um, as I just mentioned, describing the reality of the educational system and the narratives that are promoted in the Israeli educational system, yeah. which of course are the same. So Americans are in effect receiving a pro-Zionist education. And you know, from my own personal experience, when I was in eighth grade social studies, Mr. Unger's class, we were learning about the Native Americans and I raised my hand and I said, you know, isn't what happened in Palestine the same thing that happened to the Native Americans? And I, I just remember my social studies teacher, he just turned, his face turned bright red. And he became really uncomfortable. And he told me to see him after class, and he wouldn't answer my question. And his only question for me after class was, Miss Alborno, are you a Palestinian? And I said, yes. And he said, okay, well, that question was uh, out of outside the scope of our class. So he didn't give me an answer. So um, 
and of course I told my mom this and she was, you know, absolutely horrified. And she said, oh, I don't want you to be targeted. You know, my parents came from the generation that was trying to almost hide their Palestinianness. Whereas I grew up and I said, no, I'm an American. This is outrageous. This is injustice. And I'm going to use my voice uh, to speak out against this. But can you tell us a little bit about why it was so important for you to give space to these issues regarding education? It's actually one of the first times I've actually seen this dealt with in a panel. So thank you so much for doing that. But yeah, tell us a little bit about that. You know, I think people don't realize when, when they say the, the Israeli lobby or the Zionist lobby, people think of, uh, you know, men and women in suits in Washington, D.C., lobbying, you know, congressmen and senators and so on. Yeah. Governors, maybe. They don't understand that the Zionists figured out long ago that all politics is local. And that's how they act. Mm. There's a reason why. And this is something that I learned, again, by chance. Every person who is elected to a city council, even the smallest city council in America, immediately gets invited to a trip to Israel. City council, remember, I lived in a small city council near San Diego in California, and I remember one of them sent me an email, uh, somebody that one of them I knew. I mean, it was a volunteer city. It was a small city of like 20,000. And they said, you know, we got this invitation. What is this all about? Free trip to Israel. And they didn't take it at that particular city council. That year didn't take it. So I said, well, you really want to know? Yeah. And they said, yes. I said, okay, well, here goes. <laughs> How much time? And I let them have it. <laughs> and they decided that particular year not to go because they felt it was too big of a gift for a public servant. Yeah, but that's rare. Yeah. There's a reason why every police chief of every city in America, just think of the numbers. Every city council member, every mayor, every police chief gets these invitations. You know, they're building up. They know that a, somebody who runs for city council today will might run for the state legislature tomorrow. And who knows, the Senate next. So they, they know how to start this. They know that every, I don't know if every, but many of the biggest Jewish philanthropists in America are Zionists. So after a guy gives, you know, in San Diego, the Jacobs family, gave something like a $200 million uh, dollar, uh, endowment to the San Diego Symphony and saved the San Diego Symphony from bankruptcy. Well, how can you not work with a guy like that when he's a Zionist? And then obviously he's got influence and obviously that comes into the conversation and into local politics. So now education, I remember looking at my kids' social studies and, and seeing exactly what you saw and thinking, wait a minute, they're learning about ancient Egypt, and that's like a thick part of the book. Yeah. And the ancient Hebrews, and that's the same it's the same amount of pages. You know, how can that happen? And all of it is biblical. None of it is history. And later on in high school, AP World History, all my kids took, and I'm looking at it, and none of it is history. David, you know, Moses, all these figures that are all, there's no historical proof that they ever existed. This is all biblical. I'm sorry, are you trying to say that the Bible is not a literal document and it's not like a real estate agreement? <laughs> I wouldn't dare I wouldn't dare suggest that. You know that. Wow. I wouldn't dare suggest that. But the the because but the point is that, that you know they're, they're arguing <laughs> about whether or not they should teach creationism or 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 evolution. If you're gonna teach this as history, you might as well teach creationism. Because it all comes from the same source. So then wait, they're going to they're going to see that you said that and they'll be like Miko endorsed it. You know what I mean? <laughs> endorsed that we teach uh, that we teach creationism. <laughs> and so 
And so then, you know, oh, actually, by chance, I learned from an organization in Virginia, the Virginia Coalition for Human Rights, and then one in Texas. And these are the people on those panels, and they were actually working very, very hard. And they go to, because they have these social science uh, conferences, the teachers go to. And the Zionists are there with their slick curriculum and their, you know, their books and their PowerPoint presentations. And they give this stuff and they pay them to come and do these courses where the teachers get extra credit or, you know, continuing education credits. Yeah. And it's a huge thing. And that is the that is the power of the Zionist lobby. It's not the people in suits in Washington, D.C. Because once yeah. somebody's already in Washington, D.C., they've been through all of that. Yes. That's the power of the Israeli lobby. That's why it's such a tough, a tough thing for us to 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 come up against, to to, to fight, to counter, because it's so deeply ingrained, and it's been going on for a hundred years. This is not new. One of the panelists uh, in your uh, in your podcast was a was a teacher, a social studies teacher, who decided to talk about the Palestinian narrative, and when she described the harassment that she endured for years and years and years, having all of her classes yeah. sat in on by school administrators and getting constantly subject to review. And every worksheet that she passed out had to be approved. And I mean, I, I just couldn't even imagine, when does she have time to teach? Yeah. She, she described a years-long process whereby the Zionists essentially were able to get into her classroom. And 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 affect her independence and ability as a teacher to teach, you know, her own lesson plan. Yeah. So it was it was very. Um, I mean, I have to admit, I was shocked by the level. It, it, to be honest, I really was shocked that they are infiltrating eighth grade, you know, social studies classrooms. And I mean, I assumed that it was bad, but I didn't realize it was that bad. Right. No, no, it's it is thorough. They leave no stone unturned. They leave nothing to chance. They're well-funded. They're well-organized. They've been like this for over a hundred years. Yeah. You know, I mean, this is not, this is not a small thing. You know, I wrote my second book, Injustice, the story of the Holy Land Foundation. Yeah. I mean, the ADL, Zionist members of Congress and the Senate, they're, they're infiltrating the judicial, judicial system. They're in the judicial system. That entire case right. was only based on a Zionist premise. None of these guys, I mean, the guys are innocent people serving, you know, decades in prison. It's, it's all, it's a Zionist education system, it's a Zionist foreign policy, and they are using every possible means at their disposal to make sure that the wall that protects them is solid. We actually talked about uh, the case of the Holy Land Five last week in our episode. Can you tell us what you mean by the fact that that whole case was based on a Zionist premise? So the Holy Land Foundation, who, who did you talk to, by the way? That's interesting. interesting. No, we, we, we brought it up uh, just between ourselves because we were doing an episode on political prisoners and there's oh, yeah. a lot that's been going on with political prisoners lately. So we mentioned that there were also Palestinian-American political prisoners oh, yeah. who were subject to a great injustice uh, in the U.S. and are spending, for many of them, their lives now in prison for well, nothing. Well, it's, it's, even, it's, it's, it's even worse than that. I mean, these guys ran a largest uh, Muslim relief organization mm -hmm. in America. They were doing a wonderful job, a wonderful job. They, they, they were the first ones to come in 
after the Oklahoma City bombing, 9-11, mm-hmm. floods, earthquakes. I mean, they were around the world, not only in Palestine. They, they had c- connections and relations with other organizations. They were just adored and admired by everyone. We used to donate all the time when I was growing up. Yeah, every, you know what? I got to tell you, I hear that from everybody. Everywhere I go, people say, well, of course, Ramadan. That's where yeah. we donated because everybody knew that they were straight. Every year. And they did a great job and they were good mm-hmm. people. Yes. Which they were. Which is a problem for the Zionists. Yes. You know, they didn't know that what they were doing was a threat to Zionism. They just did what they did because they thought it was the right thing to do. But the ADL came out in the early 1990s with a booklet about the infiltration of the Muslim Brotherhood and stuff like that. And they mentioned Shukri Abu Bakr, who is one of the he's one of the two that actually is serving 65 years in prison. Um, and this whole web of lies and this entire campaign uh, where the FBI was listening to their uh, phones, where the IRS was being pushed to revoke their not-for-profit status, where their partners like American Airlines and some of the banks were pressured to sever their ties with them until 9-11 came. And the Treasury Department, I talk about that in the book, the Treasury had to show that they're seizing assets, that they're doing something. And somebody said, well, here we go. You know, round up the usual suspects. These guys are at the top of the list. So they were designated a terrorist organization and everything went downhill from there. You know, eight, nine years later, five of the best people you'll ever meet are serving, you know, sentences for 15 to 65 years in federal prison on terrorism charges. You know, the entire premise is a Zionist premise. It's because not because they if they were Christians or Jews or anything else, if they were not Palestinians, these men would be free. The Holy Land Foundation would have been doing fine. They would have continued their work. But the Zionists couldn't allow that. And when you see, when you read, you know, I read over 20,000 pages of, of documents, court documents and, and transcripts of the trials. It's impossible to believe just how powerful the Zionist influence is on the judge, on the judges, mm-hmm. on the prosecutors, on the... On the evidence uh, that was accepted. Oh, of course. the ev- I mean, the, the entire story is unbelievable. And that's exactly what I thought when I heard the story first, that it can't be true. You mentioned how one of the main pieces of evidence that led to their conviction was an apparently undated, unsigned document that the Israeli army turned over to the courts and said, proves that these guys are working with Hamas, and there was actually no proof that it even came out of the offices of the Holy Land Foundation in in Palestine. And is it true that that document was written on a bar napkin? (laughs) (laughs) Well, no, the problem is that a lot of the translation was done like that. A lot of the translation was done because everything was in Arabic. Right. And there was one document in which they said, and I remember this, uh, hearing about these documents while people were still wondering, okay, this is this is a problem, where their the manager of their office in Jerusalem apparently said that yes, they were giving some preferential treatment to people who are associated with Hamas, and it turned out that he that he said this under interrogation with the Israeli police because the Israeli police came down, uh, you know, on them as well, and he said the exact opposite. And so the defense had the document uh, translated 
and notarized, but it was too late. Nobody cared because the, it was the you know the, the, the genie was out of the, the a lamp. This whole story was already out there. That's it. They support Hamas. They support Hamas. They support Hamas. And um, and that was it. Nobody cared about the the evidence. Nobody cared about um, the quality of the evidence. The quality of the 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 the, the witnesses. It was all, uh, they were going to jail. Ralph Nader interviewed me and he said, you know, the, there were two trials. The second trial is the right. one where they went to jail. And he said, yeah, the second judge was a hanging judge. It's what we call a hanging judge. But yeah, so I mean, that uh, Americans don't realize that how much their lives are being influenced by this, by Zionism and this Zionist ideology. So it's bad enough that American foreign policy is Zionist foreign policy, particularly in the Middle East and Iran. I think it's interesting because if you ask Americans about Israel and Palestine, a lot of them will say, I don't know enough on the subject. And I don't honestly believe them. I think that uh, I think for some of them, that may be true, right? Some of them, they just genuinely they couldn't point to it on a map. But for some people, they know that it's better to stay silent, right? Or to not pick a side than to get involved because of the infiltration of Zionist propaganda, the you know, pressure that Zionists exert on Americans. I think people are aware of that. Well, look at AOC. Yeah. Who's That's otherwise quite brilliant. When, when you talk to her, when she's interviewed about Palestine, she sounds like a fumbling, mumbling idiot. It's quite a contrast from when she was running for office. She said free Palestine, right? When she was running for office, but then yeah, she gets otherwise. into office. So you, you feel like saying, can somebody sit with her for, give me 20 minutes, uh, sit down with her and we'll straighten this nonsense out because the stuff that comes out of her mouth is like, she's like suddenly her brain just fizzled away. Yeah. I believe Ralph Nader tried to sit down with her and then everybody accused him of sexism. Well, I mean, I, I, it's, 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 it's a poor excuse. I mean, she, she knew she shouldn't, you know, she, it's People a poor have sat down with her from the way she treats Palestine, but it just, it's, it's just to the point that you were making, Michael, that this is exactly the reality. People just are afraid. They don't know what to say. And in reality, they don't. I mean, a lot of people say, well, you know what? I, I know my brother-in-law is Jewish or my son-in-law is Jewish or my neighbor or my best friend for 30 years has been, you know, is Jewish. And I'm like, Jewish, first of all, so what if they're Jewish? What's that got to do with it? Nothing to do with it. Super duper. Who cares? They were white supremacists. <laughs> I mean, would you still just excuse it? And that's part of the problem. I think people don't realize they they put Zionism in the wrong column in their brains. Yeah. Zionism should be in the column of white supremacy and anti-Semitism and other forms of racism. That's where Zionism belongs. So opposing Zionism is opposing racism, is opposing anti-Semitism. It's the same thing. Zionism is not a response to racism. It is racism. So people just have it in the wrong side, in the wrong column, in their, you know, yeah. in their, they need to move Zionism to the other part of their brain, yeah. to the other column. It's in the wrong yeah. column. Yeah. So... I agree that Zionism should be classified with apartheid. And I think there are a number of credible scholars who would agree with that. Desmond Tutu, Nelson Mandela. Is it possible that they are wrong and a 14-year-old in Israel is right? Yeah, well, that seems to be the reality we live in. You know? That's the reality we live in. Especially, you know, you see these lunatics on TikTok. I see your stuff yeah. on TikTok. I mean, the stuff that comes up. And, and the funny thing is, you, you, you know, you can put out a serious argument about something and all the responses are just just like uh, just a bunch of complete nonsense, you know. He's an anti-Semite. Not a single argument. You know, there was not a single argument. You know, Palestinian, you know, Israeli flags, 
a bunch of profanity, yeah. you know, may you die of, of the worst kind of cat. I mean, that's, that's, that's the only argument you get. And it's not only TikTok, it's any, any platform. That's the argument you get. You, there is no, and, and that the truth is that there is no, you know, there is no response to serious argument against Zionism. And that is the nature of Zionists because it's, it is supremacy and racist, supremacist and racist. It's absurd to question uh, the rejection of Zionism. It's absolutely absurd. I mean, and, and I think, you know, sometimes you have good people who say, yeah, but, you know, the Holocaust and then Zionism, thanks to Zionism. I mean, the vast majority of Holocaust survivors is a reason they didn't go to Palestine. The vast majority of Holocaust survivors did not go to Israel. They stayed outside. And there's a reason for that. And on that point, there are 50,000 plus Holocaust survivors in Israel who are in poverty. They require donations. They require mutual aid to stay alive. Furthermore, because Israel took their money, yeah. The state yep. took their money. Yep. Yeah. Furthermore, Hetty Epstein, Holocaust survivor and pro-Palestinian peace activist, was anally penetrated by the border patrol and called a terrorist. I just, it like, it infuriates me that I have to keep saying that because so many people talk about the Holocaust, which part of my family died in, uh, as an excuse for the creation of Israel. Yeah. The answer. They say it's the answer to the Holocaust. Yeah. 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 And, and if this is true, too, of, of, of the large ultra-Orthodox community in upstate New York. These are all Hungarian Jews. They're all descendants of Holocaust survivors. Mm -hmm. One just passed away, Rabbi Beck. I, you know, I posted about him. He uh, he was an he left Palestine as because he he wouldn't he wouldn't graze his children in this in this in this uh, in that environment and he was an avid strong anti-Zionist pro I remember being in Brooklyn with him he's sitting down this old man and with a Palestinian keffiyeh and a Palestinian flag and he himself survived the Holocaust he himself as a boy survived he was you know came out of Hungary uh, so this 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 but you know the narrative. And the PR machine and the education and everything we talked about is so powerful that um, it just means we on our side need to do a lot more in order mm -hmm. to counter that, in order to get through to people. Because I think the objective needs to be that elected officials need to know if they support Zionism, they're out. They're going to lose their job. That needs to be, our, I think, our objective politically, in the political arena. And uh, if they don't support BDS, they're going to be out of a job. You know, everybody yeah. should be wearing. Everybody should be wearing this <laughs> uh, uh, the, this pin everywhere. Yeah, for everywhere. our followers on uh, no Spotify and Apple, Miko's got a great BDS pin on his uh, on his suit. Yeah, um, I'm actually curious, Miko, just to wrap up because you know we're out of time now. But how do they treat you when you go back at the airport? Are you sub? I mean, do they? I mean, they must. They obviously know you. So, are, do you get harassed at the airport as well, or do they still? you know show you some I really respect. don't think anybody knows me I mean a few people probably know me really uh, I only got harassed and I didn't get harassed I only had problems at the airport twice okay and that was because they saw that they they learned that I visited Iran okay but, but they don't I know about your activism no nothing at all the BDS no, pin probably didn't help no nothing <laughs> at all when you're an Israeli citizen you are privileged. And that's the one thing I try to explain that's to people. crazy. When people say, oh, yeah, you know, you've been with Palestinians. You walked in their shoes. I'm going, it's impossible for somebody with this much privilege to ever walk in the shoes of a Palestinian. The privilege follows you everywhere. 
And in fact, they use it as, as a means. They use it at, sometimes in order to try to, 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 to put a wedge between you and your Palestinian friends and your Palestinian brothers yes. and sisters that you march with and you protest with yeah. because the treatment, the, 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 the privilege goes with you everywhere. But at the airport, the privilege, you know, the privilege of the Israeli passport is, is, is um, that's all it takes. I mean, I don't get harassed or by anybody ever. What about in the United States? Have you been subject to any surveillance or pressure from authorities? Surveillance, I wouldn't know. I, I can only guess, but no, nothing at all. No. Can I just say that when the first uh, and only time I have been in Palestine, I went with the Interfaith Peace Builders, the group out of uh, Washington, D.C., and uh, I arrived in Tel Aviv on an American passport. My birthplace is Kuwait, so it doesn't say Palestine. And I was, of course, May as well. <laughs> right? It's Kuwait, it may as well say Palestine. May as well. Uh, I was, of course, immediately separated from the group. I was one of the only Palestinians on the trip. And I was taken to a room and the Israeli officer asked me, gave me a piece of paper, and he asked me to draw a family tree. And, okay, so here I go, start drawing a family tree. At the same time, he starts, he turns the computer screen towards me, and he starts showing me pictures of Palestinians. And he starts asking me, who is this person? Who is this person? Who is this person? And, of course, they're all random. I don't know any of them. I mean, they're random ID cards of Palestinians. I have no idea who they are. And after about an hour or so of this exercise of drawing a family tree and being shown photos, towards the very end, I, we get to a photo and it's my grandfather. And it's a very old photo of my grandfather, but I recognized him. Uh, he left Gaza in 1955 for Kuwait and was never was allowed to Was he Gazan or was he a refugee? He was Gazan. My family is Gazan from Gaza. And uh, we're, yeah, we're, we're from the minority of people who lived in Gaza, but did not come from 48 territories. So... Um, but he was never allowed to go back after 1955. And, and so the photo that they have of him was from before 1955. And I said, that's my grandfather. And he said, I know. And I said, okay. <laughs> and then he starts asking me, when was your grandfather and your grandmother married? And I said, I don't know. I mean, who knows their grandparents' wedding date? I, it's not a, it's not a fact that I, you know, collected. And he told me what it was and sure Sure enough, that's the date they got married because I called my grandmother after this ended and I asked her to confirm. And so there was just this bizarre conversation where he was asking me information about my family and and when I would give it, he would tell me that he already knew it. And I said, okay, well, if you already know it, then why are you wasting my time and why are you wasting your time, you know? But it, it's, it's this fear and intimidation that they try to instill in any Palestinians from the diaspora, from exile that go back to Palestine. They how want long you to did, know- How long did he keep you there? Few hours, um, few hours. It didn't last very long, uh, and he knew that I had a group waiting for me. So I think that that uh, expedited the whole process. You said a few hours, and then you said not very long. No, but for me, <laughs> that's how conditioned Palestinians are to being inconvenienced. Where two hours being held is like not a big deal. Yeah, no, yeah, it, he know, didn't I, keep I me for like fourteen hours. Conversation right? I have with Palestinians all the time. They held you for two hours, three hours, yeah, five hours. When they shouldn't have held you even for one second. Right. You know? But I think, I think it's interesting, the treatment of the Palestinians from the diaspora when they go back, this notion that you don't belong here and, you know, the, 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 the attempts to scare and you intimidate. Know, I got to tell you, as I hear these stories, and I hear these stories, believe me, Lara, all the time, and they make me crazy. And the reason they make me crazy is not only because of the, the, the racist injustice, but also because of the sense that you have to comply. Yeah. You don't have to comply. 
They're not the police. They're intelligence. They have no authority. They can't, they're not going to decide if you're in or out. They've already decided if you're going in or out. This is pure harassment and phishing for information. Yeah. If you sat there and said, I'm not drawing, I'm not answering, I'm going out there with my group, and that's that, that would have made no difference whatsoever as to the result of whether or not you were going to get in or not. Yeah. And the same thing on the way out. And so I don't know if you want to put this in the on the way, on the way out the recording was worse. or not. On the way out was worse. Yeah. Actually. And again, I say to people, just push off, say no, push back. I'm not talking to you. I'm not giving you my whatever it is that you're asking for. You know, bug off. And the few people that do that realize that they do push. That they, once you if you push back, they they let go because they're not police. They have no authority. They can't keep you there, and they can't not let you in. Those decisions have been made already. Yeah, on the you way know? leaving, and they leaving use people's was worse. fear, and I've seen it. They use yeah, people's yeah, yeah. fear because you don't know. You don't want to miss your plane. You don't want to mess around. You know, my, well, I just wanted to enter. I didn't want to be sent back home. I didn't want to. No, I wanted but that to. That was Malibu. already determined, regardless of what your yeah. answers would have been and how you complied. If you did not comply, in other words, the decision to let you in or not was made already before the plane landed, mm. because they get a list of the passengers before the plane lands. Right. So I always tell people, and again, I don't know if you want to include this or not. In the in no, that's okay. Interview, absolutely. But I always tell people, do not, do not, do not comply with any anything that happens at Tel Aviv. Uh, airport. They're not police. Mm. It's none of their business about what you do with your social media. What your politics are is none of their goddamn business. If they decided to let you in, they already did. And if they didn't, the, all you're doing is extending and giving them hours of your time. And the same thing on the way out. Do on the not way out, comply with anything they ask yeah. for. On, on the way out, they, of course, asked to see my social media, which I thought was strange because they didn't ask to see on the way in, but they wanted yeah. to see what I had been up to in Palestine. So yeah. they started asking me for my passwords. They, of course, separate me from all my stuff, and they dump all of my stuff out. Did and they start the looking. Um, well, I had known that this was coming because I had spoken to other Palestinians yeah. uh, who went through this, and I had created fake accounts that had absolutely nothing on them. And I said, okay, here you go. This is my, you know, and I did the same thing with the photos. I had uploaded all my photos of Palestine previously. And I was in Bil'ain. I was staying with Iyad Burnat and his family. So, you know, I was at the protests and everything, but I, of course, um, had uploaded all of those photos. And my last night, I just took a walk around West Jerusalem and took photos of flowers and some Orthodox Jews. And I, that, that was the only thing left on my <laughs> on my camera roll. So yeah, I was prepared for all that because we share the, you know, war stories and we get ready for the harassment that we're going to face. They also made me take off my clothes and they put my clothing through an x-ray machine or, and I was standing there without and my clothes on. Thing. And that's another thing. Yeah. You have the and right they had my stuff. They have yeah. no right to strip search you. Refuse. If anybody's listening to this, if they ask you to take your clothes off, you absolutely must refuse. They have no need for it. And they have no right to do it. Of course, they have no need, but I had no idea. Like, you, you I know, know people no, these know. people have AK-47s. Like, I don't know that I can say no to them. I know. Do not ever agree to any of those things. Ever. Never, ever agree. Stand your ground. They have no right to do any of those things. It's all attempts to humiliate and harass. That's it. They have no right to do. They have no, you know, legal right to do any of that. They yeah. do it because. When, when has that ever stopped Israel? <laughs> no, no. I'm saying. I'm saying. If, it's not like if you didn't do it, yeah. there would be some kind of consequence. Right. Right. You know what I mean? They're yeah. going to let you out. They're yeah. not going to keep you there. Otherwise, they're going to have to buy you a ticket. Yeah. 
they have to let you out. Yes. If they're not going to let you back in, they're not going to let you back in anyway. Right. So everything that happens there is humiliation and harassment. And you, if anybody's listening to this, I mean, do what you think is right for you at the moment. But well, my, some people are listening. We do have listeners. <laughs> my advice is absolutely do not give them any information. It's none of their goddamn business. They know everything about you that they need to know already. Yeah. Never agree to take your clothes off. There's no need for it, absolutely, and there's no, the, you know, there's no legal anything that that, 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 that has that can you know make you do it. You do not comply, absolutely do not comply. Thank you for it. It won't change the results, is what I'm saying. Yeah, it's not like if you comply, it'll make things easier. The more you comply, the <laughs> no. worse it's going to be. Yeah, it didn't. The more you comply, the worse it's going to be. And this is a lesson that people don't uh, somehow you know seem to learn. That as oppressed people, the more you comply, the worse mm -hmm. things get. And to just draw a parallel to the United States, Adam Toledo, the 13-year-old boy that was shot recently and murdered, he was running from the police. And the second he complied, they shot him point blank. Yeah. Yeah. Well, there, there's so many examples. I mean, you know, Jews were ordered to take off their clothes and march into, you know, in the death camps and march into, you know, where, where they were killed. They did it. Why? The more you comply, the worse it gets. So at the airport, absolutely fight those sons of bitches. Do not comply. Stand up to them. And if there's more than one of you, and if there's a group, the group should be there making yeah, a yeah. big fuss. They were. The and I think that's why it lasted only two hours. Fuss. You know what I mean? That's how it needs to be seen. Yeah. It's just harassment for the sake of harassment. It will not impact the end result. This is very good to know. This is my advice. And if people are coming in from the bridge, come as late as possible. Come in like half an hour before they close the bridge because they want to go home and it's going to be a lot easier for you. Yeah. Smart. I'm talking about the Sheikh Hussein. I'm not talking about uh, King Hussein in the, in the south. I'm talking about Sheikh Hussein where you come in as a tourist on yeah. an American passport. The one in the north. These guys are sons of bitches and their only pleasure is to see Palestinians humiliated and harassed. The more you push back, the better it's going to be for you and for everybody else. And if you're in a group, the group better stand up there and make as much noise as possible. Don't Thank be afraid you. of these people. I have that's one right. last question, if that's okay. Go ahead. We're up against such a gargantuan force. How is it that you maintain hope? Well, that's easy. My Palestinian friends are fighting. The kids are resisting. You know, Basim Tamimi is one of my best friends in the world. His daughter, Ahed, we all know what she did. Yeah. And she's now studying law. I mean, Palestinian kids are going to school in mm -hmm. Gaza. Every other person is a PhD. Yep. Uh, kids are going to school when they know their schools are just a wall because everything else has been destroyed by Israeli, Israeli bombs. Moms make their lunches and, and comb their hair and make sure their clothes are pressed and their uniforms are clean as they go. They don't even know if they're going to see them at the end of the day. How can I not have hope? How can I not have hope? Look at Palestinians in Palestine every single day. Look at what they do. Look at how hard they how they how how hard they resist, how how steadfast they are. You know, how could you not be inspired by that? That's where I that's where I draw my inspiration and my hope. Wow. Okay, last last question. <laughs> if you'll let us. I just one last one. What does decolonization look like in Palestine? Um, well, the process that I, that I imagine when I imagine this, 
So I remember when uh, de Klerk stood up in South Africa and he declared that the Mandela and all the political prisoners were going to be freed, that all the political parties were going to be unbanned, and that one person, one vote elections were called. That's step one. So basically now you're going to have a legislature and an executive that represents the entire population, everybody who lives in Palestine, in historic Palestine, from the river to the sea. I, that's step one. I see it could be Netanyahu. I mean, he's probably going to be prime minister for a very long time. It may well end up being him, the guy that ends this, uh, you know, brings down, was there when Zionism comes down. Mm -hmm. Now, the clerk didn't do it because he woke up feeling like a saint one morning. It was BDS. And when I was in South Africa, everybody said BDS brought down apartheid. I have no doubt about this, okay? Which is why they support it so strongly. That's the first step. Now you have a legislature. Now you have issues you need to discuss. Now we have to discuss the right of return and reparations. Not the right of return as an idea, as some kind of a theoretical notion. The actual mechanisms to allow the refugees to return and be paid what they're owed. And there's, you know, $3 billion, $4 billion coming from America every year. There's plenty of money to do that. And they're actual numbers. Because as you know, as, uh, as they say, the Chaduha Mafrusha, they took Palestine yes. fully furnished. And people don't realize just how true that is. I mean, money in the banks, uh, you know, produce in the fields, on the tree. I mean, they took they took untold amounts of money and things that have monetary value. So all that has to be done. All this has to be paid. Now, Palestine has a rich Arab history, a rich Muslim and Arab history. You know, and a lot of these places, you know, names have to be re brought to life. Monuments that are still standing but are falling apart. Dahir uh, al-Omar's mosque in Tabariya, for example, yeah. is standing like it's some kind of a just old building. I mean, these are glorious, glorious monuments, a glorious history that needs to be brought back. Now, the organization Zuhrot, which you may have heard of, you know Zuhrot, possibly. I saw your interview with the guy. You know, a wonderful organization. Yeah. I just did an interview also with the executive director uh, as well that's going to be coming out soon. They have a project called Envision Return, where they actually have young people going in and designing what are the villages going to look like again? Amazing. What are the return villages going to look like when people come back? You know, how are they going to rebuild them? There has to be that, you know, that this is not decolonization, but these are the steps to decolonize. And of course, the name Palestine, which goes back, I see you have the book right yes, behind you. There. You see it? Thousand years. <laughs> yeah, 4,000 year history. The name Palestine goes back almost 4,000 years. That is the name of the country, you know? And if anybody doesn't like it and anybody doesn't want to live among Arabs and anybody doesn't want to live in a free society, you know, they can go somewhere else. But this is, I think, these are the steps, I think, that will lead us to a real free, decolonized, uh, real liberated Palestine, democratic Palestine. That was brilliant. Thank you so, so, so much, Miko. It was really pleasure. a pleasure to speak with you and to meet you today. Pleasure. Thank you. Thanks a lot. Thanks, Thanks for coming on, Miko. Absolutely. Bye. Take care. Bye-bye. Thank you all so much for listening to another episode of the Palestine Pod. Find us at www.palestinepod.com. You can email us at palestinepod at gmail.com. We so appreciate you taking time to listen to our podcast. Go ahead and like, subscribe, leave us a comment or a review, and we will see you on the next episode of the Palestine Pod. Have a great day. Palestine Pod Palestine Pod Slow down your relax
Made fun of you for wearing colors last time, so you came dressed for a funeral. Yes. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's hard because it's like, you know, you can't be too casual. You're on camera. Yeah, I agree. You can't be too casual. <laughs> but yeah, but then you're also like, well, I don't want to wear like, you know, I don't want to be fancy. I'm also just sitting in front of my laptop. So it's a delicate balance. Should I do the part where I introduce him? Yeah. <clears throat> Let me just do it and get it. Open. Also, if you cough into the mic, you have a you should have a mute button. I don't have a mute button, dude. Oh, that's right. All right. Well, then cough away from the mic. <laughs> okay, so I don't blow your ears. You're fucking you. You speak away from the mic, but you cough right into it. I swear, I cannot with you. <laughs> no, that's so good. That's actually true. I literally did cough at. Yeah, that's how you get corona digitally. <laughs>